Hello, everyone. This is Mike Lindstedt. I'm the president and co-founder of the Nehemiah Project, and you are listening to the Nehemiah Project podcast. I'm here with Chad Wiles. He's the director of education and counseling. What's up, guys? And today's podcast is all about the mind. And man, we have got some great content to get into, some mm-hmm. great topics to discuss. Yeah. I'm excited, man. I would say the topic of the mind is maybe the most important topic for anyone to understand, Christian or non-Christian, but um, because it is where everything happens. Uh, it's where the entire heart takes place. You've heard us talk about the heart biblically, our beliefs, our cognitions, affections, desires, our volitions, our motivations into action. Everything comes out of the mind. Mm-hmm. I know when we think of the heart, we think of like somewhere else, like in our in our chest, or in, you know, that's that's not how it all functions. How everything wires back to our brains, our minds. Right, right. And so, therefore, the number one thing that Satan would want to attack is the mind of of people, because mm-hmm. if he has the mind, he has the person. Right. And the same thing is also true that faith comes through the mind. Faith mm-hmm. in God comes through the mind. So the war for the mind is the ultimate war. It is the epic battle that rages on throughout all of time. Absolutely. And today's uh, primary focus is going to be on Satan, the mm-hmm. adversary, as he is called, and his desire for the human mind. We're going to talk about the human mind and Satan's strategies to conquer it and how to win against Satan's onslaught. Mm-hmm. And so first, just kind of talking off of, or, or piggybacking off of what you just yeah. said, you know, the mind is something we cannot see, mm-hmm. you know, and there's been some really cool experiments, even in the, the secular realm, right. kind of thinking about, okay, well, where is the mind like housed? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If you, if you do, you know, if you t- do certain things to the physical brain, will it affect mm-hmm. the mind? And yeah, that's true. It actually does. And yeah, so yeah. the mind is absolutely fascinating. Um, it is the most prized piece of real estate that you have as far mm-hmm. as Satan is concerned, because that's what he goes after first. Right. And we're going to talk about his primary objectives. We're going to talk about his strategies today. Um, but first, we're going to get a little bit into what the Bible has to say about the human mind. Mm-hmm. And we know from you know reading the Bible, and, and you listeners out there who might, might not be as familiar with the Bible, you guys know if you've just been listening to our podcast that the Bible essentially puts people in two categories. Yeah. You are either a believer or a non-believer. Um, and it has a lot of different terms that it used yeah. to refer to those two categories, but essentially it's mm-hmm. it's dualistic in that sense. There's two types of people, believers and non-believers. And so the first point we're going to talk about is the unredeemed mind versus the redeemed mind. Chad, go ahead and read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Okay. Well, in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, this is where we see um, Paul talk about the unredeemed mind says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Then he goes on to say, speaking of the redeemed mind, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Wow. And so the objective of the prince of the power of this world, as Ephesians 2 calls him, right. Satan, is to darken the mind or to blind the mind 
of those who are unbelievers to see what is true. And right. It's God's objective, and the redeemed mind shines the light of God's truth into our hearts, into our minds, making himself known to us. Mm-hmm. And you talked about this war. Another way to think about it is in the spiritual realm or in this world, you can really look at it, and the Bible talks about the war between two kingdoms, kingdom of God, kingdom of this world, which kingdom of God ruled by God himself and king of that being Jesus Christ, uh, the Trinity, God, Father, uh, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then kingdom of this world where Satan is the ruler of that, that God has allowed him to be. And so there's this war between the unbeliever and the believer, kingdom of God versus kingdom of this world. And the king and the ruler of this world, his goal is to blind us, right? Uh, blind our minds. So the person that is unredeemed or a non-believer, uh, what occurs in their mind at salvation, essentially sounds more like this: that no longer is that person left vulnerable against the devil as mm-hmm. before when they was before salvation. They're mm-hmm. not vulnerable anymore. Mm-hmm. The new person now has a knowledge of God, like Second Corinthians four four said, their mind was blind. Mm-hmm. Now they can see. Right? right, right. What's the uh, uh, I was blind, <laughs> and now I see. Yeah, yeah right. amazing grace. So this new person now has a knowledge of God and and God's will mm-hmm. that that person previously lacked. So right. the Bible is, is explicitly clear that there is a dark force. Uh, there is a dark. A person, you could say, because Satan has right. the elements of personhood, right? Intellect, uh, emotion, and will. Mm-hmm. And he is actively against uh, those people who are not redeemed. So that's the differences between the unredeemed mind and the redeemed mind. Next, we're going to talk about the non-renewed mind versus the renewed mind. Now, 2 Corinthians five seventeen says that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Behold, the old person is gone Mm-hmm. And the new has come. Right. And so that kind of gives us a working definition of what it means to be renewed. Uh, Romans 12, 2 and 3 is some of our f- most favorite and most often quoted verses here because it's so mm-hmm. applicable to this topic is it says, mm-hmm. do not be conformed to the pattern or to the image of this right. world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so again, right. we're talking about the renewal of the mind. What mm-hmm. does Ephesians 4 say about the renewal of the mind? says, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And that's Ephesians 4 is a, the whole basis for our ministry at the Nehemiah Project, the dismantling of the old, the establishing of the truth and then being restored and renewed um, in our minds. The mind is where all that takes place. Right. And Colossians 3 <clears throat> verses 9 and 10 basically reiterates the principle, the, the mm-hmm. put off, put on principle, mm-hmm. says that do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed mm-hmm. in knowledge after the image of its creator. Again, renewed in what? In knowledge. Right. So important to have your mind renewed in knowledge, and in, in knowledge referring to not just any knowledge, but specifically God's knowledge the Bible, the will of God. Right. And, and, and that, that really kind of leads us into a really key point that we're going to be kind of um, orbiting around throughout mm-hmm. the rest of this podcast is to be a Christian literally means you think as God thinks. Right. You pray for what God would pray for. 
right? You, you do what God would mm-hmm. do. Like Paul says in Ephesians 5, 1, right. it just came into my mind. He says, be imitators of God, right. like straight up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, what a lofty task, right? Mm-hmm. What a seemingly impossible task. It would right. be impossible unless we had been saved and been given right. the Holy Spirit. But it's important in the non-renewed versus the renewed. In the non-renewed mind, the Bible's clear. We've just read a few verses where Satan's primary goal is to blind the, the mind of the unbeliever. And so the only way for your not your mind to be renewed is if God himself opens your eyes to it. The Holy Spirit has to come in and illuminate and give us the ability to see. Right. Um, because Ephesians 2 says we're dead in our trespasses and sins, meaning we're without life, without understanding, without ability to see. Mm-hmm. And then God in his mercy because of his son um, for and the Holy Spirit comes in and illuminates, opens our minds to the truth of God's word. And so that is a perfect segue into the discussion concerning the darkened mind versus mm-hmm. the illuminated mind. Illuminated mind is a doctrinal word, but we're going to give you guys a couple of scriptures that would define it for us because it's best to go mm-hmm. with what scripture says about it, not with our own understanding. So right. Chad, what, is it, what does 1 Corinthians say about that? 1 Corinthians uh, Chapter 2, verses 12, starting verse 12 through 13 says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Wow. So listen to this one. This is from Psalm 119, verse 18. Just a little side note. Psalm 19 is the longest portion of scripture in the Bible. It's 176 verses. Mm -hmm. And the theme of that is God's law. It is God's law. And so Psalm 119, verse 18 says this, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. The psalmist is saying, God, open my eyes. I need you Mm -hmm. to give me vision, Mm -hmm. spiritual vision. The next one from Psalm 119 is verses 33 through 34, and it says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. There's the heart again, right? right? With my whole heart. Right. First commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Right. Love the Lord your God with right. everything that you are. Ephesians 1 goes on to say, um, and starting in verse 18, says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. And so just so we may know, having our eyes of our hearts enlightened. Mm-hmm. So the darkened mind versus the illuminated mind. In, in one sentence, the illuminated mind is a mind that is enlightened by the spirit of God so that they might comprehend, embrace, and obey the truth revealed in scripture. Straight up, Mm -hmm. open my eyes, Lord, teach me your law. Help me to obey you, right? And remember, we've talked about this on on this podcast before, but obedience, according to Jesus himself, equals love for God. Yeah, right? that's right. Equals love for God. Because we, you've heard us say here many times that what you believe is what you do. The reason why Jesus says that is your belief is never detached from your actions. And your actions always reveal what you truly believe. And so that's why Jesus says, listen, your obedience, I want your obedience. And your obedience shows love for God. And, and you can't have it separated out. And in our world today, the conventional thought is, 
well, my beliefs are these, but my actions are this, and it's all kind of on islands and separated. And just because I do this doesn't mean I believe that or whatever. And that's just not how the human mind works. That's not how the heart works. Um, we're deceiving ourselves if we don't if we don't think that our actions came from um, deep rooted and um, deep seated beliefs that we have. So the next part to kind of get close to finishing us off here with the first section of this podcast is the the idolatrous mind versus the Christ-like mind, or I'll say it another way, one's own independent thinking versus God's thinking. Those are synonymous terms. The idolatrous mind is a mind that leans on its own understanding, mm-hmm. right? The Christ-like mind right. is the way that God thinks. Yeah. So what does Matthew have to say about that? Matthew 16, 23, Jesus is rebuking Peter. He says, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Idolatry comes from when we set our things, set our minds on the things of man, not on the things of God. Wow. Colossians 3, 2, speaking of standing in awe of God's mind, uh, says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Set your mind on things that are above. What do you mm-hmm. mean? Just look up at the sky and think about the stars? No, 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 no. Above here is referring to the place where God dwells, mm-hmm. not on earth. Right. So, you know, a side note, but we don't know necessarily where heaven is geographically. Right. <laughs> we just know that it's up. Yeah. Because God is above all things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we haven't ever found found heaven. No yet. one has found heaven except for Christ and it came well, I mean, he went up there to, to hang ascended. out. He's waiting for us. He, he ascended. So <laughs> yes, we know he it's, has it's up somewhere. <laughs> we know it's somewhere. <laughs> what, um, what does uh, Romans 11 have to say about standing in awe of God's mind? <clears throat> We're looking at a Romans, uh, Romans 11, 33 through 36. And it says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or what has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. To him be glory forever. Amen. I just want to say that God's view of reality is the only true view that accurately corresponds to reality. Mm -hmm. Right. And that would make complete sense because we've talked about it here in the issue of authority. If God is is the authority, if you believe in God, then it only makes logical sense to say he would be the one that would have the authority on how things right, work. Right, He created everything. <laughs> right. This idea of you hear in many Christian circles, which I, I say Christian with quotations, where, well, I believe in God, but I'm not sure that God meant this or that God would say this or... That doesn't make any sense. Right. God said it. So if you believe in God, then what does God say? Right. It's that exactly. simple. <laughs> oh, wait, Chad, I thought humans wrote the Bible, though. I mean, they're, they're <laughs> humans wrote the Bible, right? Well, God says that he is the one who inspired all those, right? Right. So it says that all scripture is breathed out by God. Right. Breathed out by God. So yes, mm-hmm. human beings wrote it under the divine influence of the Holy Spirit. Right. We can trust God's word as it is written. Mm-hmm. Trust me. The Bible itself claims that it is the very word of right. God from his mouth. Now, you may not believe that, and that, and that's okay, but at least acknowledge that you don't believe in God then. Because right. that's what you're, if you don't believe that, then, then you're not believing in God because God himself says that through right. his word. 
So the last thing um, that I want to, the last scripture rather that I want to mention here is Isaiah 5, or sorry, Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9. And just so we're clear, you know, God is the only uncreated being and we, Mm -hmm. and everything else that we can see and cannot see is created. And here's what God has to say about his thoughts. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your mm-hmm. ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And I love this too, because the context of this is talking about God's mercy and compassion. Right. You know, human beings, we have no sense of how amazing God's compassion is, right. how boundless his mercy is. Mm-hmm. He is the most holy and sin is an absolute affront to his nature. Right. And yet he doesn't just wipe us out. He didn't wipe Adam and Eve out right away. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? His mercy reigns over all right. that he has. That's right. And which makes him, you know, a holy, trustworthy God. Yes. And we are not. Although in our culture right now, science has taken the place of God. And mm-hmm. it's not to say that we are against science. Not, not at all. Not at all. We're just... We just want to put science in its proper place, meaning right. it's in the place of discovery and, and it's helpful, but it, it is not the authority over God. Right. And if you look at just, let's just look at how that plays out, because a lot of people believe that science is the authority, that we should trust in science. Many things about science constantly change, and facts, that things are acclaimed as facts, are really theory that can constantly change. But then just look at how societies play out as we continue to go further and further away from God and we trust in science more and more. Societies break down. Mental health issues continue to grow. Marriages continue to be broken apart. You read Romans 1. I mean, it's it's been, look at history. Mm-hmm. Look at every empire. Cycle. It, it's a, a cycle. It always, always, always it's breaks pre- down. Predictable. It's predictable. Yep. And our society is looking much like that of what Romans 1 talks about. How, oh, yeah. how God gives us over to our, the sense, the, uh, gives us our, over to our sin, to essentially. Our, he says it this way, though. Um, man, let me, let me get it here. Romans 1, starting in verse 18. I'll just read this, and you'll be like, man, sounds a lot like what we're seeing right now. <laughs> and this was written in the time of the Roman Empire. It says, For the wrath of God is re- revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Talking about truth for the mind, right? Mm-hmm. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. They're here speaking of science. We're constantly discovering more and more of God's awesome creation, you know, into the universe, to to being able to see our cellular structures under microscopes more and more and how intricate it all really is like god really created this like such a splendorous creation the study of dna is absolutely (laughs) fascinating just just look at it i mean even a superficial understanding of it it goes how do those little biological machines know how to put these dna molecules together who's telling them it's (laughs) fascinating so it's been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they're without excuse for although they knew god they did not honor him as god or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking, speaking of the mind again, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. That is our world right now. Claiming to be wise, claiming to know more, claiming to trust in science. We become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up 
in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the, create, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to be debased, to a debased mind, to do what ought not be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetedness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Wow. That, I mean, you cannot predict that. Like, look at our world around us right now. Yeah. Look at that list I just read. It is happening. Can't say it any better. <laughs> so that leads us to the final point in the first section here. You've got the unredeemed versus the redeemed mind, non-renewed versus renewed, darkened versus illuminated, the idolatrous mind versus the Christ-like mind. Mm -hmm. And if you have a Christ-like mind, then know this, that you will be tested. Mm -hmm. Your mind will be tested. Absolutely. That leads us to the tested mind. The Christian mind should be renewed in the scriptures and it should be a repository of God's truth. You know, the Christians should be champions of truth mm -hmm. in a world that's filled with lies. And these lies are deceivingly disguised as and falsely to be declared as the truth. Mm -hmm. Falsely to be declared as the truth. A commitment to think Christianly honors Christ, but it is not without opposition, says John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew from their book, Biblical Doctrine, a Systematic Summary of the Bible's truth. So <clears throat> speaking of deceivingly disguised as and falsely being declared to be the truth, this leads us into who Satan is, right? Mm -hmm. And what his primary goal is, first and foremost concerning non-believers, is to keep them from perceiving the truth of God's word and to think like he thinks. And we, we went over that with scriptures, right? He's blinded the mind of unbelievers, right? Mm -hmm. To keep them from seeing the gospel. His, Satan's goal concerning believers is to deceive them and entice them away from thinking as God thinks, mm -hmm. to undermine the truth of God and to replace it with lies. So who is Satan? Well, Satan, he is the perpetrator of all evil. He is the adversary and the one who opposes God. That is the Hebrew meaning of his name, adversary, Satan. Mm -hmm. Satan exhibits three basic characteristics associated with his personhood. I've already mentioned these, but he does have the characteristics of personhood, mm -hmm. intellect, mm -hmm. emotion, and will. He is willfully against everything that is associated with God in Christ. His modus operandi is deception, and he operates as the master of disguise and powerful antichrist strategist. He is the ruler of the world system and has the highest power among all created beings, but his power doesn't even come close to when you compare it with God. No. God is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, immutable, sovereign, eternal, immortal. He is the greatest and he is self-existent. Nobody created God. So Satan's got absolutely nothing on God. You know, one of the 
false beliefs that, that runs around in there is that like this sense of dualism or this idea of dualism, right? right. right? That there's two equal opposing forces, mm-hmm. the yin and yang, right? right? I will tell you from what scripture says that Satan is not equal to God. In fact, Satan serves God's purposes in many, many ways. And that's a topic of discussion for another podcast. But the point is this, is that Satan is the declared enemy, the one who opposes God. He has the characteristics of a person, intellect, Mm -hmm. emotion, and will, and he uses everything that he is to oppose God's will. Right. Some of the words that describe his character, these are all coming from the Bible, and I'm just going to read them and then... Chad, jump in here and, and give us some more information. But here's some of the words that describe Satan's character. These are two Hebrew, uh, one Hebrew word, Abaddon, and one Greek word, Apollyon, from Revelation chapter 9, verse 11. These describe him as the angelic king with dominion over demons in the bottomless pit, which is known as the abyss. The abyss is where demons don't want to go. I just remember the story when, when uh, Jesus, you know, uh, exercised legion out of the individual in the, uh, the region known as the Gerasenes. And he cast the demons out into 2,000 pigs. But before he did that, the demons asked Jesus, please don't send us to the abyss. So this is a place that even demons who are fallen angels don't mm-hmm. want to go. So that is Abaddon and Apollyon. Satan's character is described as the accuser, the devil, mm-hmm. the dragon, the enemy, the evil one, the father of lies, the God slash ruler of this world. He is the liar. Lucifer, lying spirit, murderer, prince of demons, prince of the power of the air, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, the serpent, the ancient serpent that was in the garden of God, the garden of Eden, and he is known as the tempter. According to the scriptures, these names describe his character and show that Satan is the ever active ruler of this world who is constantly at work on earth during this present age. He not only prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but but he's also involved in a host of other activities. These are all from scripture. Here we go. He tells lies. He influences people to lie. He mm-hmm. disguises himself as an angel of light, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15. He snatches the gospel away from unbelieving hearts. He holds unbelievers under his power. He traps and deceives unbelievers, mm-hmm. holding them captive to do his will, according to 2 Timothy 2, 26. He tempts believers to sin. He seeks to deceive the children of God. He takes advantage of believers. He seeks to destroy the faith of believers. He torments the servants of God. He thwarts the progress of ministry and he wages war against the church. Guys, if your hearts and ears hurt from hearing that, so do mine, because we have an active, very, very powerful enemy. But the power that is in you, if you're a Christian, is greater than the power that is in the world. Yeah. You know, um, one thing I keyed in on there, because there's so much good stuff there, and it's so important you know, to understand your enemy, if you will. Um, that's what we see so much in Scripture, and we're going to spend some time later on, maybe in, a, maybe in our next podcast, talking about putting on the full armor of God, because it's important for us to understand our enemy so we know how to fight our enemy. But the one thing that I keyed on um, most from what you said, Mike, that I think is important, is that he disguises himself like mm-hmm. an angel of light. He doesn't deceive us um, coming to us in in evil form usually. For most of us, even if you're not a believer in God, you you wouldn't want to partake maybe in um, egregious evil acts. Like if you saw that coming at you, you'd immediately maybe run, right? Right. Um, What his greatest trick is to look like something good. 
Right. That's his greatest trick, and to do half truths, which are lies. Deception. Deception. Right. And so many people are so deceptive, de- deceived right. because of those deceptive half truths. We see that in the church world all the time. We uh, there's a great documentary um, called um, Christ Alone. Uh, I'm blanking on the name of that one. Oh, the one that just came out on Netflix. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah it's about the, uh, the the Christ Alone doctrines, the sola fide, sola scriptura. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I forget the uh, uh, the American gospel. American gospel. That's what I was trying to get at. Thank you. The American gospel, Christ Alone, and they show the differences between the Word of Faith movement and even something like Catholicism, which both use Jesus' name and claim uh, to to be good. But when you break down the theological truths of those movements, it's wrong. It's heresy. It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. leading people astray and giving you a form of religion. That's not yeah. true biblical faith in Christ Jesus. The Reformation was born out of a Catholic priest known as Martin Luther coming to the Catholic Church having 95 theses against what they were teaching. Mm-hmm. He said that what you are teaching is not found in the Bible. Here's 95 points of what you as you guys are currently teaching, and it's not found in the Bible. Right. Now, to be clear, there are saved people in those movements, mm-hmm. right? They're saved people. So this is not a judgment against all individuals right. within those movements. We're saying as a system, as a theological the, the theological mm-hmm. underpinnings of that system right. and of those systems they're not in the bible i mean that's not our opinion mm-hmm. that's just history tells us that and the bible itself right. tells us that and, and that's his greatest deception if you ever um have, get a chance I, I encourage the listeners to to read or or get on audible.com and listen to the screw tape letters by c.s C. lewis he does a great job in an allegor- allegorical sense of of writing a letter, it's, it's written from the, the perception or the perspective of a demon who's trying to raise up his nephew, this future demon. And speaking of how do, you, how do we deceive these humans, how do we get more basically on our team, if you will. And his whole strategy, what he's trying to teach his nephew Wormwood is basically that, like mm-hmm. to deceive, to distract, to, to get them... To, to get them to think that they're doing good or, you know, to just right. slowly uh, keep them away from the enemy, he called it, which obviously for him the enemy would, would be Jesus. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know? And then uh, look what Paul says in Second Corinthians 11, mm-hmm. speaking about this very thing. He says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Right. Their end will correspond to their deeds. We have to be extremely careful um, because in the religious world, he disguises himself. In the secular world, Satan would disguise himself and make us think things are, are good. Let's just take the pro-life movement versus abortion. Let's just take that to where constantly as well a woman should have the right to choose and it's disguised as it's it's a good right to allow a woman to choose what happens to her own body that sounds really good completely taking away the fact that where's sanctity of life who created that life is that a lot a human life right if it is which we believe it is then you're killing people. I have a baby in my wife's belly right now. And that, I saw that thing moving at like, I thought it was like seven or eight or nine weeks. I mean, there's a little, well, little a, peanut in there. You get a heartbeat. Yeah, that's it, what I saw. Know, like, and we know scripture tells us God knits us in the womb. Like it, we are yes. we are a, 
a life form from conception. Not- you know what I think is fascinating about um, children being created in the womb of their mother by God? It's mm-hmm. fascinating to me because God took mm-hmm. six days to create the whole universe mm-hmm. and yet he takes nine months to make a human being. Mm-hmm. That's, oh, that's just right. beautiful. And there's so much that goes, and you just, you're in that process of pregnancy right now right with your now. wife and, and all the things that God teaches you and you learn and, and you go through together in this process. But we want to argue that one point of like, well, a woman should have the right to choose completely negating all the other factors of human life and what God has set up and his purposes and what he's doing. It's, it's deception right? Under the, under the guise of something good. Right. And that is how s- Satan operates. He is the unrivaled master of disguise. He, I mean, like Chad just said, he makes what is evil appear good. He makes sinful behavior appear righteous. And he, his lies sound attractively better than the truth, no doubt. Absolutely. The truth is hard, straight up. <laughs> yeah, because it goes against our sinful nature. Absolutely. The reason why that, I'll use that example, I don't mind to harp on it because I think it's a big deal in our culture, mm. is it sounds really good to say, you know, freedom of choice because what that means is now I don't have to deal with any consequences for my actions. I can go freely have sex, and if I if we get pregnant and I don't want this child or I'm not in a place in my life to be able to have a child and all these things, then I can, I can fix that for my own life or whatever. And we're backing up like, well, yeah, because you shouldn't have been doing that in the first place. Or let's go back to how God created marriage and all these things. Like, mm-hmm. We're so out of whack that now we're arguing on these results of sinful behavior right. and how to how to fix that result. Mm-hmm. And it's like, <laughs> there's consequences for actions. Not that the baby should have the consequences, but that the baby should have a, a, an opportunity for its own life. Right. You know, and there's other ways, like adoption or other forms, right. to, to help that, not abortion, obviously. Right, and there is a small percentage of cases where women, you know, are, it is against their will, they are raped and things of Absolutely. that nature. Evil is prevalent, and we're not, saying, we're not trying to minimize that Absolutely. at all, but there's a small percentage of cases where that happens, and, and I would encourage you mm-hmm. to go look at that research and see what those women actually end up doing when they see the heartbeat in, mm-hmm. their, in their belly. Even right. if they didn't want that child and it was against their will. Right. Go, go look that research up, and we'll leave, we'll leave that conversation there. <laughs> right, we could talk about that all We day. could talk about that forever. But the point is this, is that Satan's modus operandi, like I said, is deception, and he disguises evil and mm-hmm. dresses it up, makes it look good, and he calls it truth. And so while all these things are, are daunting, they're overwhelming, mm-hmm. the Apostle Paul encourages believers in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse, verse 11, and he says this, that believers... We should not be outwitted by Satan, Mm -hmm. for we are not ignorant of his designs, his schemes. So seeing that Satan's objective is to keep people from believing the truth Mm -hmm. of the gospel and worshiping God, how does he attempt to accomplish this? He is after your mind. How does he go about doing it? First, a couple of scriptures on the importance of the mind. Proverbs 23 verse 7 says this, For as one thinks within himself, so he is. And Proverbs 27, 19 says, as in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. Mm-hmm. This is very interesting. As you think, so you will be. The heart of a man will reflect the nature of that man. These are, these are phenomenal things to understand. Going back to 2 Corinthians 11, talking about uh, Satan's deception, Paul says this in the third verse, 
But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Hmm. And as I said before, he said this in the 11th verse, we should not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. Ephesians 6, 11 says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The words for designs and schemes both refer to Satan's manipulation of your mind. Why does Satan want to manipulate the mind? Because as you think, so you are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as your heart is, that will reflect who you are. That's right. How you think about yourself in your mind will reflect how you carry yourself in daily life. And Satan attempts to corrupt your mind so that he can corrupt your life. That's right. And lead you away from a pure and sincere devotion Mm -hmm. to Christ. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, Satan has four major objectives against the Christian. Now we're talking about Christians, okay? We've dealt with Mm non-believers. If you are a non-believer listening to this, understand that the thoughts that you are having... (laughs) They are not of God. Understand right. that. And I'm standing on the truth of God's word. And Chad and myself and Christians around the world, we pray mm-hmm. for salvation for non-believers on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And I pray for you. And if you're listening to this right now and you're feeling like, I, like I'm speaking directly to your heart, that might be evidence that the Holy Spirit is convicting you. Mm-hmm. Reach out, call out to God. Call out to God right now where you are and pray that God would forgive you of your sin, repent, turn to Christ for salvation. Mm-hmm. Stop looking at your own performance. Stop trying to, to do all the right things. Stop trying to be the good moral person you think God wants. God, <laughs> you can't impress God mm-hmm. straight up. His thoughts are not your thoughts and his right. ways are higher than yours. Absolutely. Pray to God that he would forgive you of your sin and understand that he is ready and willing to do that. But what are Satan's four objectives here mm-hmm. against the Christian? Number one, Satan will attempt to distort or deny the truth of God's word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the biggest thing that Satan wants to do is get you to think that all of this in the scriptures is foolish. Mm-hmm. Um, most people in the world around us right now, um, even hearing us talk about uh, the Bible being true and, and that God's word being the truth, we're looked at as foolish, ignorant, um, <laughs> looked at as um, knuckle biters or whatever, you know, like just Bible thumping Jesus hippies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, I'm on a Jesus trip, hicks right? Or whatever, you know. And I get that because the foolish to the world who claims to be wise, we do seem foolish. But once again, we go back to if God exists, then it would only make sense that he would be the one with the authority of how things should go. Right. Right, and so we believe that God is real and that His Word is true, and so therefore, we we want to expose that truth to help people see that you're the one actually being deceived. You claim to be wise in your own eyes, but it only leads to your destruction. Even if you live a decent life, because there's many people who can deny the truth of God, live a decent, happy life here on earth, but we're talking about an eternal perspective. Because Jesus says in Luke 9, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? You could gain this whole life, but just know that this is the best it'll ever be and that you will live in in eternity separated from God. Philippians 2, I believe, is where it says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
Mm-hmm. What part, what side of eternity will you say that? Because if it's not done in this life, then you will, your knee will bow to, to the Lord, but it'll be too late. Mm-hmm. And so it's important for us to understand that. And Satan wants to attempt to distort and deny the truth of God's word. He wants to make the word of God seem um, uh, ridiculous, to seem as old thought, to, mm-hmm. s- to, to seem as unintelligent. Right, non-scientific. Non-scientific, which by the way. Unrelevant. It's, that's not true at all because there are Christian scientists who would tell you that, that it doesn't have to conflict. Science and God's word doesn't conflict. Mm-hmm. Now, claims of science of fact that deny the, the truth of God's word do conflict, but they're just claims. They're not proven facts that, that we've never, science has never proven anything that would, would make God's word um, untrue. Untrue. Yeah. Never. Never have. So, with the first strategy here, which is Satan will attempt to distort and deny the truth of God's word, we have uh, a couple bullet points, and these are from uh, the Biblical Doctrine book, a systematically a systematic summary of Bible truth by John MacArthur. Um, and so we didn't make these up here. They're all from Scripture, but I think mm-hmm. it would be helpful to those of you listening out there uh, to understand Satan's strategy in depth. I mean, listen, if Satan can accomplish one or more of these four goals that we're about to go over, Mm -hmm. then he's moving closer to his desired end. He is going to own you and he wants to use you to accomplish his end. So listen up. Every single military leader prepares for battle by understanding his enemy, right? right? He understands his enemy completely before he enters into battle. So be assured that Satan understands you better than you can even imagine. The Bible is the intelligence report on Satan and that's your primary enemy. Understanding what the Bible has to say about Satan's objectives is absolutely critical to standing firm against all of his attacks. Believe me, those attacks will not stop until you leave this place called earth. Trust me. So the first objective, Satan's attempt to distort and deny the truth of God's word. We're gonna read from Genesis chapter three, verses one through six. Chad, why don't you go ahead and read, uh, actually, I'll get it for you. And you can read Second Timothy. And so just for you guys listening out there, the scriptures that I'm gonna read, they have to do with the strategy And the scriptures that Chad is going to read have to do with God's mind. Because remember, we made the distinction. There's two categories of Mm -hmm. thinking. Your own autonomous way of thinking and God's way of thinking. So here we go. The first bullet point under the adversary's first strategy is called sensualism. It's defined as the attractiveness and desirability that have replaced God's word as my standard for determining God's best in my life. So from Genesis chapter 3, here we go. Most of you guys out there probably know this section here. Mm -hmm. And it says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you can't eat from the tree uh, of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden and neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her mm-hmm. and he ate. So they saw with their eyes that the, that the fruit was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that it would make them like God. It would give them wisdom beyond anything that they could understand. 
So the sensual attractiveness and desirability replace God's word as Adam and Eve's standard for determining what God had for them in their life, God's best. Right. So God's mind is this, and we see this in 2 Timothy uh, verse three, starting uh, or chapter 3, starting in verse 16 through 17, says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so God's mind is that his word is actually what's best and that it's breathed out for our best, for teaching, for reproof, for correction. Yes. So that's point number one under Satan's first strategy to distort and deny the truth of God's word is sensualism. The next one is sensationalism. And it's defined as, I believe that immediate success is more desirable than success in God's time. And here in Matthew chapter four, verses one through 11, we have the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And instead of reading this whole section, I would encourage you guys to, I'm just gonna get straight to the point here. Verse eight says this, again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give you if you will simply fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So Satan understood the son of God's mission. It was to go on the cross to die and to save the entire world, to save all of those who would believe in Christ. It was to come to earth and destroy Mm -hmm. the kingdom of Satan. In other words, to crush the head of the serpent, like it says in Genesis chapter three. And so Satan goes, hey, check this out. I'll give you a faster way to get to that same goal. I'll give you the world. It's mine. I can give it to whoever I want, but you got to bow down and worship me. You don't got to go through all that pain. You don't got to go through all of that struggle. That three years of struggle, Jesus, that's so long. Look, you could skip all that right now. Just bow down and worship me. It's simple. Right, which is the same thing we all you know, are tempted with in in the world of, you don't have to obey God. You don't have to be accountable. You can just do whatever you want. You You don't have have to wait to have sex till you're married. You you should have sex with her before. That way, you know you want to get married to her, right? Right. There it is right there. Right, same thing, right? So here's what uh, God's mind is. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25 says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so Satan may try to trick us with this uh, sensationalism of success, thinking that the things of the world are greater. But don't be deceived. God, God's weakest moments is stronger than any of our, <laughs> any of our yes. wisdom. Yes. So there's a lot of points here, and I'm just going to pick a few more that are really, really pertinent and that we kind of see on a regular basis. So this next one is rationalism. It's defined as, I will substitute human reason for simple childlike faith anchored in the word of God. So 
think Jordan Peterson, mm-hmm. right? Now, I personally, this is not a knock on Jordan Peterson. It's a very intelligent human being. Absolutely. Absolutely intelligent human being. Except when it comes to the things of the word of God, he is more like a child stumbling around in the dark, trying to pull together human wisdom, human rationalism, an evolutionary perspective on creation. He's trying to bring those things in to the infallible word of God. And when you listen to his lectures on the Bible, he gets very close. He gets very right. close, but he's missing the key. Now, I don't know if he's doing that on purpose. I don't know the guy, but all I'm saying is I've listened to his discussions on the Bible. And when I say that he's like a child stumbling around in the dark, trying to figure it out, I don't say that lightly. We have already established that unless you are a believer right. in Christ, you can't understand the wisdom of God. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how amazingly brilliant, like Jordan Peterson is, right. you are. Okay, so rationalism means that I will substitute human reason for simple childlike faith anchored in the word of God. Matthew chapter mm-hmm. 16, verses 21 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. Mm-hmm. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter, <laughs> I love Peter. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but rather on the things of man. Yeah. Isaiah 55, verse 9, we see what God has to say here. It says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. The reason why, the simple reason why rationalism cannot work, no matter how brilliant or rational you are, is that we are looking at things from a finite perspective, from a hu- human perspective, that we can only see parts of the story. God created it all. He has the whole story. He, his ways are much higher than our ways. His understanding is much better than our understanding. And so you shouldn't have a blind faith. We're not advocating for a blind faith. There, there are many things that God reveals to us to, that make rational sense, but there is a part that has to be faith in God to know more than we know. Right, exactly. The last one here under the first strategy of Satan to attempt to destroy and deny the truth of God is known as ecumenism. Is that how you say it? <laughs> ecumenism. That's a big word. <laughs> right. Well, here's what it means. And this is something I hear all the time. I believe that all sincere religions involve valid expressions of worshiping the true God. Yeah. Okay, so Allah, Yahweh, who, if you guys don't know who Yahweh is, it's the God of the Bible. Yeah. Uh, Buddha, uh, you name it, right? Hinduism with his mm-hmm. pantheon. They're all kind of getting at the same God, aren't they? I mean, they're just other ways of understanding Mm-hmm. who the creator is, right? That's where you get that analogy where there's it's all one big mountain and they're right. just taking different paths to the top. Let, let's be clear. None of those religions say that, by the way. Right. None of them. <laughs> they are all exclusive and they say, my way is the only way or the highway. The thing that separates Christianity from the rest mm-hmm. is that it's historically verifiable. Mm-hmm. It's, fact, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's fact that all of the things that happened in it have been, as far as they can be discovered, discovered, right? Right. Um, so from Revelation chapter two, verse nine, and Revelation chapter three, verse nine, we get our biblical uh, understanding of what it means to, to uh, dissect this point. Mm-hmm. It says this, Revelation chapter two, verse nine, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Revelation chapter three, verse nine. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. 
Behold, I will make them come down and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Mm. That is the Lord Jesus Christ himself saying that. Right. They say that they are Jews, but they are not. Yeah. And the Bible makes it very clear. Acts 4, verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is speaking about Jesus Christ. Right. So that is Satan's first objective. He will attempt to destroy and deny the truth of God's word. And we gave you guys listening some of the examples of how that works out practically. So let's mm-hmm. move on to the second one, this, the second one out of the four. Satan will try to discredit the testimony of God's people. The first, here, the first point here mm-hmm. under this strategy is called situationalism. It says that I believe that God's word is flexible enough to bend when I judge that the situation demands it. Mm. I mean, I don't even know if I really need to go into this one too much because when I judge that the situation demands it, I can kind of bend God's word when I feel like it. Yeah, like I mean, we're in love. So <laughs> we're, you know, yeah, we, we had sex before marriage, but I think God, I mean, I don't think God's against that. We, we love each other. We're good people. You know, so on and so right. forth. Like uh, I'm not even going to read the scripture here because the one that's <laughs> popping up into my head is when Saul in the Old Testament, not yeah. the Apostle Paul, but mm-hmm. Saul, you were just telling me this the other day. Mm-hmm. We, we were reading the, the scripture yeah. together. Uh, was it First Samuel? First Samuel uh, yeah, 16? First Samuel, uh, yeah, I think it was, no, 15. First Samuel yeah. 15, basically, long story short, the king of Israel at the time, his name was Saul, he had a direct commandment from God to utterly destroy the enemy that he was about to face. Mm-hmm. Everything that was living was to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. Well, basically, he took that commandment and followed it up until it came to destroy the livestock and uh, up until it came to destroy the king of the uh, people. And uh, essentially he became the judge of God's word and kind of picked and choose what he wanted to follow. Right. According to the situation, that seemed best for him. Yeah. And then that was the last straw where God got him out of there as king and raised up David. (laughs) So Straight up. (laughs) So God God definitely uh, expects us to obey him. Acts, uh, or Psalm 119.89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word I f- I f- is firmly fixed in heaven. And so we, we know that um, his word is firmly fixed and we shall obey it to its nth degree. Yes. Situationalism, man, that's a tough one, you know, because uh-huh. there's like that fine line. You know, if your mind, if my mind is not renewed mm-hmm. in the scriptures, like, yeah. You, like you're going to revert back to what you do. You know what I mean? What Absolutely. you practice, you're going to go to, you know? So situationalism, now we could t- do a whole podcast on that. We might. We probably you know should. What I mean, we probably should. I got a lot of things to say about that. Yeah, because, I can see your wheels turning over there. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, because, and not negative things necessarily, I have a lot of empathy for situationalism because, yeah, we, we kind of threw out some where it's very cavalier to do what you want. But, you know, I face this a lot in the counseling room when someone comes in and it's it's a real mess maybe maybe they're being abused by their husband and the bible says to honor you know as a wife to honor your husband so what do i do with that how do we how do we work these situations out um god's word has the principles and and the commands and the direction to work out messy situations but the answer isn't to just decide to disobey god's word but it's to navigate hard situations by god's word and that takes a lot of study and a lot of understanding. And that's the purpose of pastors and elders and, and counselors to help people with. <clears throat> but I can understand how in some situations, especially in, in situations of suffering, where it could feel like I should abandon the Word of God and just do what I think is right. Yeah. So I want to also give the empathetic side of, of that coin. 
So the next bullet point here in the adversary's second strategy to discredit the testimony of God's people, the next point that we're going to read is isolationism. And it, and it sounds like this. My reputation will have an effect on no one else but me. And the scripture mm-hmm. that we're going to read is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7. And this is the Apostle Paul uh, writing a letter to um, his young apprentice, I guess you could call him, uh, Timothy, who was a, a younger pastor that Paul was kind of um, discipling and, and, and kind of teaching how to become a, a, a more mature pastor. And this is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7. Moreover, the pastor must be well thought of by outsiders, meaning people outside of the church, so that he may not fall into disgrace, mm-hmm. into a snare of the devil. Your, your reputation affects the entire church body, Christian. Yeah. What you do reflects on the church that you mm-hmm. go to. Yeah, it's... It's a, um, it's just a fallacy to think that way. To think, the our culture right now is very individualistic. Like I, I'm allowed to have my thoughts. You have your thoughts. You do your yeah. thing. I do my thing. It's very pragmatic. Whatever, everyone can just have their own beliefs. That sounds good in a bubble, except for the way it's created is we all have impact on one another. And so now, whose truth is the right truth? And that's how you get tribalism. That's how you get all this stuff we're seeing right now, protests, oh, yeah. wars. Yeah. Um, you're seeing things being destroyed, people being murdered. Because unless you're now, unless you are with me, you're against me in, when, it, when it matters, right? And so it, it just doesn't work itself out in, in a right way. Um, and the example here, you know, is used in terms of marriage, where in, within a marriage, it's, it's extremely... Um, important to um, ha- be on the same page when it comes to truth and and understanding because because um, everything affects one another but it's yes. just an example if, like for instance ephesians 5 22 through 25 says wives submit to your own husbands that's to the lord for the husband is the head of the wife even as christ is the head of the church his uh, his body and and is himself its savior so the parallel of marriage and the church so if you're listening to this and saying, well, I'm not married, well, this this uh, example is broader than just within marriage. It's Christ right. and the church. Um, now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, mm-hmm. that he might sanctify her with the cleansing of the word. And, and so that's the idea of servant leadership and and being a servant to one another as we are slaves and servants to Christ and we... We trust in his leadership and, and right. his, his guidance. And when you have, you know, wives obeying the word of God, husbands obeying the word of God, that reflects nicely, not only uh, mm. reflects um, uh, accurately, not only on uh, the trustworthiness of God, yeah, right? Yeah. But also it reflects well on the church body that you're uh, a part of. You know, mm-hmm. if you have problems in your marriage, that's okay. I mean, these things happen, right? Mm-hmm. But you've got to take care of them. But nothing reflects better on the character and nature of God than a marriage that is functioning as he has set it up. Right. That, that is the point there. The last scripture here from, uh, from isolationism, talking about how your reputation will have an effect on the people or the church body, rather, that you surround yourself with, is from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. It's talking about employees in today's vernacular. Hmm. Let all who are under a yoke of, as a bondservant regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Here's the reason why. So that, the name of God and the teaching of God may not be reviled, right? So bond servants, 
we don't have bond servants too much in America as far as I'm as far as I know. But we take this and we apply to the employee boss relationship. Yeah. Employees, respect your boss. Even if he or she is an absolute jerk, <laughs> respect them. Why? Mm-hmm. Because God has told you to. Right. Right? And if that person is not saved, maybe you will win them over. Right. Or, hey, if you work somewhere where the things they're asking you to do cause you to sin against God, then quit and go work somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> Straight up. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, but, yeah, if you're not being asked to do anything unethical and your boss just isn't a nice person, that, is, that doesn't give us a right to to fight fire with fire and be jerks ourselves. We we love our enemies, as the Bible tells us, you know, and mm-hmm. so we definitely want to show the love of Christ when, when people don't deserve it. That's what Christ did for us. He shows us love and grace and mercy when we don't deserve it. Right, so the the third part of Satan's strategy here, we're moving on from the second part, which was Satan will try to discredit the testimony of God's people. The third component of Satan's strategy is that Satan will seek to depress or destroy the believer's enthusiasm for God's work. We're gonna read two of these bullet points out of here, Chad. The first one we're gonna read is materialism. I think that one's quite mm-hmm. pertinent to every single person yes. uh, in America for the most part. Um, I don't think that's too much of a stretch to say that. Uh, yeah. me, me and you included, you know, yeah, we, we have absolutely. to fight that as well. Absolutely. Materialism says this, that I prize material and physical blessings more highly than my spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ. And the example that I wanna talk about here is mm-hmm. from the book of Job. Now, if you guys don't know who Job is, um, by the way, his name is spelled Job. <laughs> Job, is, Job is, 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 or is described as a man who loved God. He was a wealthy man, very, very wealthy, especially for the time period that he lived in. He may have been one of the most wealthy guys yeah. uh, that was around during his time period. And the book of Job opens up with this very interesting discussion between Satan and God. Satan comes up to heaven with other angels and presents himself before the Lord God. And the Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? So the Lord is the one who first and foremost puts forward Job as an exemplary example, right? Mm -hmm. An exemplar of what it means to live for God, right? Even though Job has all of these material blessings and wealth accumulated, Mm -hmm that still doesn't own his heart. Mm -hmm. And Satan says this against Job, God, look, the only reason he even likes you, okay, is because you've given him everything he could possibly want. He's got a beautiful family with tons of sons and daughters. He's got all the wealth in the world. I mean, come on, this guy only worships you because he's got it all. Yeah. And God goes, all right, let's put that to the test. Mm -hmm. Take his family from him, don't hurt him. Take his wealth from him, don't hurt him. Even, That's the first one. You can even strike him with illness, but don't you're not allowed don't to kill, kill him. And so the book of Job is this long discourse on Job's struggle with right. why is this happening? Yeah. Why is this? I don't get it. I don't understand. But the one thing that the book of Job tells us is that true saving faith is unrevocable. True saving faith will get stronger in times of trial, of trial and difficulty. And look, dude, Job, I'm just gonna read I just want to read some of Job's, uh, oh man, this is so gnarly. My California comes out <laughs> yeah, when I read it. This is so gnarly. This is some of Job's uh, illnesses or, or trials. 
He had painful boils from his head to his toe. He had severe itching and irritation. Mm. He had extraordinary grief, loss of appetite, agonizing discomfort, insomnia, worm and dust infested flesh. I'm not making that up. It's in chapter seven, verse five of Job. Mm. He had continual oozing of his boils, hallucinations, decaying skin. He was literally shriveled up, severe halitosis, which means awful breath and rotting of the gums and teeth. Mm -hmm. He had relentless pain. His skin literally turned black. He had a raging fever and he lost a ton of weight. Okay. Everything bad that can happen to you except for death. Everything bad that can happen. <laughs> and oh, honest, and he lost his entire family, by the way. Yeah. So, And honestly, he probably would rather have died if, if you would have gave him the choice. Yeah. I, I mean, think he actually called out for that. Yeah. If I was in Job's, just hearing that list, I'm like, yeah, I'd rather just die and go to heaven. Like, go ahead and end it. <laughs> but the one thing that Job tells us, again, is, is that Job did not prize his material and physical blessings more highly than his spiritual relationship with God. Right. What does God's mind have to say about that? Well, Jesus says in Matthew verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added for you, added to you. So seek first the kingdom of God not material things, and this is in the context of a time when, when they're worried and anxious about food and clothing and, and material things. And and Jesus knows that, and it's not saying that we don't need those things. He just puts it in the proper perspective. Seek first the kingdom and God's righteousness. That's our first primary thing to seek after, no matter what the circumstances are, and God will provide what we need. Now, you may not have everything. You may not have abundance. But even in the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus says how to pray, give us you know, our daily bread, which signifies what we need to survive and, and have and provide for us in those ways. But it doesn't mean that we may be rich. God never promises that. But we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's what we should be seeking because we have to have an eternal perspective. Yeah, We don't live for this life. We live for the eternal perspective right. of heaven. This life is temporary at best. Yeah. Even if you gain all the riches in the world in this life and you're without God and forfeit your soul, it's nothing. It's nothing. It's meaningless. Yeah. The last three bullet points here under Satan's third component of his strategy, which is Satan will seek to depress and destroy the believer's enthusiasm for God's work, all have to do with failure and weakness and difficult circumstances. Mm -hmm. And I'm gonna read from defeatism, which is the notion that because I have failed, I am no longer useful in the king's service. Mm -hmm. The scripture I'm gonna look at is Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34. This is what it says. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. And so if you guys are familiar with the story, which most people are, Peter did do exactly what Jesus said he would. He denied that he knew Jesus mm -hmm. three times. Mm -hmm. And actually, I think it's in Luke's gospel where on, the, on one of those times, it may be in the third, where Jesus is looking right at him when he does it. And it says that Peter turned away in grief and ran. Right. He wept bitterly. Yeah. Oh, so if anyone knows what it feels like to be defeated in the Lord's service, it's Peter. But mm -hmm. then we know at the end of Luke's gospel that, is it Luke's or John's? John. John's gospel that 
Jesus reinstates Peter mm-hmm. and he puts him back um, in, his, in his place amongst the apostles, the mm-hmm. place amongst the disciples. Peter's name means rock bed. It's Petros in the Greek. He is the rock upon which Christ built the church. It is started from him with Christ being the chief cornerstone and the 12 apostles of the foundations of the New Testament church. Mm-hmm. And so Peter failed big time. Mm-hmm. Big time. I mean, even, Jesus even says, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father in heaven. Yeah, yeah. Peter did that three times. Yeah. But Jesus prayed that Peter's faith would not fail. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, right? Yeah. Jesus said, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Mm-hmm. That's the key. Christ asked for it. Right. Well, and the key too is in Peter's life was repentance. Yes. Repentance is was is in the Christian life a mark of salvation, like the desire to repent. The conviction of sin leads to repentance. Godly, we're going to sin. We're going to deny God in a lot of ways in our actions and our deeds. Mm -hmm. But if we have the Holy Spirit, we'll be convicted and we joyfully repent because of Christ's grace in the the gospel. Mm -hmm. Um, God's mind on this one, defeatism, comes from Psalm 32, 1 through 7. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Blessed is a man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I, am, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, I did not cover um, my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You persevere me from trouble. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And so here, David, his great sin with Bathsheba, um, same kind of thing. He he denied God through his actions and, and chose the things of this world and and. God restores him through his repentance and forgiveness. Wow. So the final component of Satan's strategy to to take your mind, the final component is that Satan will aim to dilute the effectiveness of God's people. And the first one here is talking about ego, egotism. Says this, that I will attribute what I am and what I will achieve to my own accomplishments rather than to God's activities in my life. First Chronicles chapter 21, verse one says that Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. And so background on the story quickly is, is that David was a very successful warrior. If you guys don't know anything about King David, he's one of my favorite characters in the Bible. This dude was a man's man. He was not only a, a, a man of war. He, I mean, his, the stories are some of the things that he did. Oh, yeah. He was a beast, man. But he was also a musician. He was a very passionate individual. He, he wrote songs, literally. David was a man's man, and his ego, at times, mm-hmm. got very, very big. Mm-hmm. And we know, everyone pretty much knows about how, you know, the story with Bathsheba and, and how David committed adultery and whatnot. But this particular story is talking about David's pride and his, and his, and his military might. And so what happened here is Satan was used by God to test David. What he did was David decided to, as being incited by Satan, count his military and, and number the warriors amongst him. And David was to gratify his pride and the great strength of his army and consequent military power. 
rather than trusting God, mm-hmm. rather than saying, no, Lord, I don't care how many warriors I have. I don't care how many weapons I have. I don't care how strong our military is. Lord, if you are with me, that's all that I need. And so David's ego, which is the term coined by Sigmund Freud, which we heard about in our previous podcast, yeah, yeah. David's ego was this, that he was looking at what his might, his military, the things that he thinks he accomplished on his own could contribute to Israel's strength. What does God's mind have to say about that? First Peter 5, 6, I think says it clearly. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Um, James 4 talks about, you know, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I think that's in verse 6 in James 4. But it's very simple. God is God. We are not. (laughs) It is very simple. And so anything that we think that we have is is egotistical if we think we have it outside of God's grace and, and his gifting to us. I just I usually say it this way. The very f- fact that we need to eat and sleep should be a sign that we are not able to be gods ourselves. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> we need things. God needs nothing. Right. The next one here in Satan's fourth component, which is to dilute the effectiveness of God's people, is nominalism. Nominalism. Saying you're a Christian, but not living like a Christian, in other words. Because, and the thought would be this, is that because I'm saved and my sins are forgiven, it doesn't matter how I live. My present lifestyle is not important. Once saved, always saved, absolutely true. But <laughs> Jesus said you could tell a tree by its fruit, okay? Mm-hmm. Apple tree, I don't produce oranges. A Christian tree produces the works of the spirit, not the works of the flesh. Right. So the example here is from an Old Testament prophet book. It's the, the book Zechariah, chapter three. Um, verses one through five, and I'm gonna read it here. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing on his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And, he, and to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Mm-hmm. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they, so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by him. Mm-hmm. Notice that distinction, that comparison, filthy garments, pure garments, right? Mm-hmm. Clean turban. Those are, those are terms that are used in prophetic literature and revelation as well right? Clothed in garments of white, right? Mm -hmm. It does matter how you live. If you're a Christian, we're not talking about your salvation at this point. We're talking about all the things we've actually mentioned already. Your actions directly reflect on God. Paul says in Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God. Mm -hmm. Be imitators of God. Why would Paul say that if living however you wanted was what God wanted you to do? Mm -hmm. Doesn't make no sense. I don't make no sense. What does God's mind have to say about that? Well, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, say it this way. It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says... I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 
But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Hmm. Once again, what you believe is what you do. There is no such thing as nominal Christianity. It's a falsehood. If your actions do not show that you are trying to follow the Lord, you're going to mess up. But if in your heart, in your mind, you're, you're not trying to grow, know God, and grow deeper in Him, then what you should say is, maybe the truth of God is not in me, because you can't really have it both ways. Mm. The last one that we're going to talk about today, this is the final point. In the fourth component of Satan's strategy to deceive you by diluting the effectiveness of God's people is uniformitarianism. Essentially what it means is that my relationship with trespassing believers or another way of saying that, my relationship with believers who are caught in habitual, unrepentant sin will remain the same despite their repentance and change of heart toward God. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5-11. through 11. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Yeah. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Hmm. And so we should change. <laughs> I mean, straight up. Straight up. There's no- now, there's, there is, we have to kind of dive into this point for a little bit because mm-hmm. if, you, if there are unbelievers, or I'm sorry, rather, if there are believers who claim to be a brother of, of Christ, who claim to be part of the church, and yet do not live the way that the Bible has prescribed for us to live, this is a very serious thing. Mm-hmm. Unrepentance within a believer is a very serious thing. And Chad, uh, what are some of the prescriptions the Bible gives for dealing with this sort of thing? Because this text that I just read from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, is talking about the reconciliation that occurs in a trespassing believer that is repentant. Right. Right. So, so an example of that would be okay. Let, I'll use myself for an example. Uh, let's just say that I was caught in pornography. Right. Mm-hmm. That I was secretly hiding my uh, pornography addiction, and it came to light. Right. And you, as my pastor and the other pastors, came to me and tried to counsel me through it, but I was mm-hmm. not willing to let it go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is the course of action the Bible describes there? Yeah. Well, uh, Jesus makes the most clear points on this in Matthew chapter 18, in verses 15 through 18. It says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So, in that first situation, you know, find out about pornography. I, I maybe confront you on it. You repent in that moment. Praise God. You know, we gained a brother. I'm going to help you walk through that, right? But let's say you didn't listen. Well, 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So I'm going to come back with maybe Pastor Sam or someone else who's 
close with you and plead with you and and help you see like man this is going to destroy your life and it's sin against god like mm. please repent you know but verse 17 if he refuses to listen to them tell it to the church and if he refuses to listen even to the church let him be to you as a gentile and a tax collector so what we do then is we would say just like first john i read we're going to assume at this point your refusal to to obey god's word is that the truth probably isn't in you, and I'm going to revert back to treating you as if you don't know God, mm-hmm. and I'm going to work on sharing the gospel with you. If you're a member of our church, you'll be dismissed from membership because membership's for believers, so the fact that you haven't shown the fruit of a believer, we're going to, di- you know, it's called church discipline. It's not, it's not to reject you. It's not to be mean to you. It's right. so that you'll be clear that maybe you don't know God, and so we're going to go back to treating you in such a way and, and making that clear to you in hopes that that would either lead to your repentance to God for the first time or God would use that to get your attention to repent and be restored back into mm-hmm. the into his, his family. Remember, the ultimate objective here of Satan is to deceive people, both believers and non-believers, to not think how God thinks, right? That is right. the fundamental objective that he has. Mm-hmm. And so in the context of what we were just talking about, if someone's claiming to be a believer and they're not showing any of the fruit, and in mm-hmm. fact, they're being unrepentant, so they're going the opposite direction of mm-hmm. Christ. Well, as a pastor, even though I, I'm not a pastor, but as a pastor, as Chad's a pastor and, and mm-hmm. the other ones here at the Field Church, their, their, their objective then is to help shepherd you into right. thinking the way God thinks, mm-hmm. into acting, right? Because we know that belief tries action. And right. so... That is the ultimate objective there of the Christian pastor mm-hmm. to help you think the way that God thinks. Well, I want to also um, elaborate a little bit further. Yeah. Our number one goal in church discipline, as it's lined out in Matthew 18, isn't to conform you to our ways or to keep a good, healthy church member. That's actually the last thing on our minds. The first thing on our minds is that you would you would be right before God in your soul. Yes, eternity is at stake. The reason for that seemingly harsh rebukes or con- confrontation isn't because you've wronged me necessarily, or or that it, it even influences my eternal life, but it's that I we need to out of love for you. If we believe God's word to be true, I I want to make sure that you actually know God. That's my first. My first objective is that you would eternally be secure with Christ. And so uh, the mark of someone who's not a believer is one who habitually will um, live in sin. And so if you're in sin and, and refusing to repent and grow through that, then by the Bible's terms, as we've read, mm-hmm. you may not know God. And so now... My first objective isn't to reject you, but it's to draw strong lines so that you would see you don't know God. That's what is at stake. Yeah, That's what I'm trying to help you see. Not, well, you broke some of our rules at the church, so you can't be a part of the church. It's not even the point. <laughs> it's not a social club? Not a social club, no. Okay, guys, so just to wrap it up here, in conclusion, Satan is the adversary. He is the one opposed to mm-hmm. God. And by extension, he is opposed to all of God's people with a vehement, cold and heart, mm-hmm. 
full of hatred and, and, and ultimately he wants to destroy you. His goal is to win your mind. He has power over non-believers, but that power is nothing in compared, comparison to God's power. And so his goal concerning believers then is to deceive and entice them away from thinking as God thinks, to undermine the truth of God and replace it with lies. Mm -hmm. Satan has four major objectives against the Christian in his quest to claim your mind. Number one, Satan will attempt to distort and deny the truth of God's word. Number two, he will try to discredit the testimony of God's people. Number three, he will assault one's soul by depressing or destroying the believer's enthusiasm for God's work. And number four, Satan will attempt to dilute the effectiveness of God's people. Mm -hmm. But Paul says this, we are not unaware of his schemes. Mm -hmm. Chad and I have just spent some considerable time laying out to you what those schemes look like, how they work mm -hmm. practically, and we hope and pray mm -hmm. that this helps you. If you don't get it the first time, listen to it a second time. Right. If you don't get it the second time, let's do it a third time. Mm -hmm. and keep going until you get it. And why would we talk about this on the Nehemiah Project podcast that's supposed to be about counseling? Because this is the true underlying issue of all your mental health issues. So we wanted to give you understanding what's happening in your heart. Thank you guys for listening, and we will talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Nehemiah Project podcast. For more resources about addiction recovery, suicide prevention, and overcoming other life-controlling issues, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and visit our website, tnproject.org. If you or someone you love is struggling, don't hesitate to reach out to us by calling 985-205-3022.